Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. Hey, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I love Walter's music and if you would like to know more about what Walter does, you can always find Walter at walterparks.com and you can always reach out to me at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N A V E. I would love to hear from you and if by chance you would like to join me on Saturday morning for a writing gathering, I host, I would love to see you on the Zoom screen. I host this writing gathering with my creative collaborator Allegra Houston. We do it at noon Eastern time and we get together with 18 people, laugh, have some fun, tell a few jokes, write some pretty good stuff, and we share it within the hour. So if you'd like to be part of that, imaginativestorm.com is where you can can go to find out more, imaginativestorm.com. And today, I am happy to tell you I have a good friend on this call, a dear friend, somebody whom I've known for for many years, we first met in 1996 at the National Poetry Slam Championships in Portland, Oregon, and his name is Paul Devlin, and Paul and I have gotten to know each other over the years, and we've become brothers, friends, family, and our, our lives have, have moved on since 1996, and yet 1996 was a great time in Portland at the National Poetry Slam Championships. Paul Devlin has a number of Emmys to his credit. He's a CBS sports editor, documentary filmmaker. He has a number of documentary films to his credit. He writes, he has some screenplays. He, this guy is engaged and he's also splitting his time between New York and, and up in Vermont where he's doing a little construction project with his family. So Paul Devlin, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks very much for having me, Nave. I'm glad I finally got on your show. We tried about three years ago, and we sat on the couch in your your place in New York, and you and I did a bit a little bit of an interview. But your lovely young daughter named Wren, who is a little older now, she was a, just a little child, a toddler at the time. She was toddling around and learning how to speak. So Wren wanted to be interviewed as well, but we had to postpone this conversation because she was just learning English. So I have to right. wait a while before I interview. Ren. She is a wonderful little girl and and I'm congratulations on being a being a proud father with a lovely young child. Thank you, Nami. So I'd like to begin this time together asking you to reflect a little bit on our meeting in Portland in 1996. And the reason why I'd like to do that is because I've had so many slam poets on this show, performance poets, spoken word artists, and poets who do page poetry as well. So this show does lean rather in the direction of, of the poetic sensibilities. And you were a big, big influencer with the movie that you made in Portland titled Slam Nation. And it's still to this day considered the seminal work on the early poetry slam days. So I'd love for you just to give us a sense of why you did that and what you're all about in the film world and carry it from there. Thanks again for having me, Nave. I'll start by saying at the time I was Slam's biggest fan. I got exposed to it at the New York and Poets Cafe. And I started out 
going as much as I could. Back then it was new and no one had ever seen this kind of thing before. And it was very exciting and it's in television. So naturally I thought, well, we can make this into a television show. And so I got together with the people at New Eurekan, navigated the shark's nest of their politics and got a shoot going and made a pilot for a TV show, which did okay. We put that together, won a New York Emmy, but we couldn't get that into a series. But I was so taken with the slam that I wanted to capture the nationals, which I learned about while making the New Eurekan project. And that was still in play. I still had hope that we could turn that into a series. And meanwhile, the nationals were happening. I said, we have to get this covered. We have to get this on tape. So I insisted on getting that going, even without funding for a series. I had no idea that it would become a movie. I had spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I had a motorcycle there stashed at a friend's house in San Francisco. So I jumped on that motorcycle, drove up to Portland on my own and put out the word to the Portland uh, film community and camera people just came out of the woodwork. We just hired them and sent them off to the various venues because it's a big sprawling event. And we covered the entire National Poetry Slam. Along the way, I met lots of interesting characters, lots of poets, made a lot of friends, including James Nave, Michael Brown, whom I knew before, he was a Boston slam master. He pointed out Nave and he said, you got to interview that guy. So um, you became part of the movie. That movie did very well. We ended up premiering at Film Forum in New York City. Got a, a lot of nice press, um, played theatrically across the United States, 30 cities, premiered on television on HBO. At the time, that was a big deal. CNN picked it up, 60 Minutes picked it up. Deaf Poetry Jam, I would say, you know, Slam Nation was a precursor for all that interest. Slam poetry, obviously it took on a whole big life of its own. And is it still active today? Yeah, Slam Nation, it's available on my website, devlinpicks.com. I have several documentaries that I've done, five or six have been picked up by distributors. And somehow Slam Nation fell through the cracks with the distributors as far as streaming goes. So it's not on any of the streaming platforms, Netflix and uh, Amazon and those kind of things. But it's on my site. So actually, I kind of, I'm kind of glad of that because I'm the only one. I've got exclusive. <laughs> all my other movies, the distributors are getting all the money. Go a little bit more into the story of Slam Nation because I remember when I was at the Poetry Slam, I had stopped slamming as a competitor. I was hosting and house managing and generally being deeply involved with that community. And you did hire a crew. And I remember when the crew came, it was a huge bunch of characters with cameras. And I thought, where did all these people come from? And I guess you had four or five crews running around filming all these venues. And at the time, we probably had 50 plus teams competing in these different venues throughout Portland. So how did you take work and turn it into a film that made sense? It's one thing to go around and just shoot little videos of people performing poetry. Right. It's another thing to to create tension. And I, I do know that there was some tension. You arrived at the 1996 National Poetry Slam Championships at the height of the poetry wars. The New York contingency and the Chicago contingency were at each other's throats. Carl Sandburg versus Allen Ginsberg, even though right. Allen Ginsberg and Carl Sandburg were not there, but it was Bob Holman and Mark Smith right. who were representing those two schools of thought. That's great drama, right? It's ideal. When I first went up there, I didn't really have a plan and had my camera and that was it. And of course, I'm not going to be able to cover that many teams by myself. I got in contact with one or two camera people and I 
put out the word and then everybody was calling me. My strategy at first was like, I'll cover one or two venues. I got to figure out how to identify the people who are the best ones, follow them somehow. And it was kind of an impossible task. But then when the camera people started appearing, I realized, oh my God, I can get the whole thing. I don't have to pick. I don't have to figure out who's who. I'll just shoot everything. I would give the camera people permission to interview. You know, if you see somebody good, get them on tape, record them, get an interview. So we covered the whole thing with about, I don't know, 10 different camera people. And the challenge became, as you say, how do you find a story in that mess? And so my experience with being a video editor allowed that to happen. So I brought all that material home. I bought an avid editing machine, put it in my second bedroom in my Manhattan apartment and closed the door and didn't come out for about eight months. <laughs> so that was, that was basically uh, how I managed that. And I would just look through the tapes and see what I had. And that was kind of a fascinating experience because I would get surprised over and over and over obviously couldn't see all, all the performances, but I would put in a tape and a lot of it wouldn't be anything interesting. And then someone would just pop off the screen and I'd say, that person is incredible. Let's go find that person, get them interviewed. Let's make sure we feature that performance. You know, some of the interviews that I didn't know were there, I would put in a tape and see some amazing interviews. So it was a really exciting process to go through that. I had some planning done because I was in New York. I had followed the New York team. I prepped by shooting the New Eureka finals. So I had that in the can and I knew I wanted to follow that team. Then I also knew Taylor Molly. I had heard about him and seen him perform before. He wound up being the perfect villain and he won. So that was helpful to be following him as well. By that time, I knew Mark Smith. As I was going through the footage, I would go out and collect interviews after the fact and have people comment on, on the events. Again, I just hired camera people around the country. So instead of flying out to Chicago, I would uh, research a camera person, hire them, send them off to interview Mark Smith. They'd send back the tapes and I'd just keep editing. So it became a real just editing challenge to, uh, to put together the story. And it, it was a challenge. It was difficult to try to manage that, but it did have the inherent structure of a competition. So I could always rely on the competition to maintain the tension and maintain the, the drama and maintain the storyline. So I would keep coming back to the competition, branch out and explore a character, come back to the competition, branch out and explore a theme. And that's what held the movie together. And uh, a plus, plus, of course, the performances. And this was new. So no, nobody had seen this before. No one had any idea what this was like. So we've all seen slam poetry since then. But when nobody's seen it before, that is kind of dazzling. If you can wrap that up in a big dramatic package, you know, suddenly you've got a movie. Well, for those of you listening, Mark Smith was the man who started the slam in Chicago and he's been on this show and Taylor Molly has also been on this show. I've interviewed, interviewed both Taylor and Gail Danley, who's in your movie. I interviewed right. her last week. So oh, I have wow. Gail, three of great. your principals <laughs> in the, in the film. And Gail, Gail I, was one of those performances. Like we, we didn't have any interview with her. She wasn't, she wasn't a character, but that performance was like, Oh, just got to go in. <laughs> oh, it was, I want to die. When I die, I want to come back as Richard Nixon or something was what he was. <laughs> it was really, really great. So you are a sports editor and you edit for CBS as well as other, other organizations. Mm -hmm. And your job as a sports editor, I know that you've been at this a long time. I even remember you called me once 
or I called you during the Super Bowl. You were editing the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl went dark. And I sent right. you a text and I said, how's it going down there? I think it was in Miami. I'm not sure where mm -hmm. it was. And you wrote back, well, it's just chaos down here. It's just chaos. Yeah. So you've been editing at the highest level of sports editing that anybody could do. You're one of the top sports editors in, in New York. So how did how does that skill that you have acquired over these many years help you cut these pieces that you do like with the, with the slam? You know, obviously there's a sports analogy with competition with the slam. That was a great thing when I was promoting the movie to people love the fact that I was a sports editor. I worked for the Olympics and I worked the time I was working for NBC. That was a great hook for uh, copy, you know, for reviews and, and interviews and articles. Yeah. I, and I capitalized on those skills, being able to put together really energetic pieces was a great contrast to the prejudice people had against poetry about being boring. So I flipped it on its head, right? For, so you have these incredibly dynamic performances matched with a sports editing style. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, what's going on here with, a, wait, wait, you've got a documentary on poetry and it's exciting, <laughs> you know, and dramatic. You know, we were able to turn those prejudices around and make them work to our advantage when, uh, when we were getting reviewed, because people love that idea that, that you were taking something that the expectation would be completely opposite of what it was. Yeah, so that the sports definitely came in handy, just editing in general. I started my sports career as a runner, gopher, you know, an assistant in uh, Seoul, Korea in 88. So I, I was traveling around Asia after college. I just spent two years traveling around. So I got a job at the Olympics in Seoul, Korea, just running around to different venues. I could go into any venue. I had a, a credential that got me anywhere. And so I would do my job, you know, during the day and it, and, and the rest of my time I would spend going to sporting events and really had a great time. But I met all the important people at the Olympics at NBC, and I can trace every job I've ever had since then to that runner job in Seoul. And at the time, I had edited my first documentary in college, Rock in Brunswick, about New Brunswick, New Jersey bands where I grew up. I was way into rock and roll bands. I couldn't play an instrument, so the way I could participate was to document all my friends and I made a movie about that. So I had the skills at that time. And I found out how much the editors at the Olympics were making, how much money they were making. And I was like, oh, dude, <laughs> I am all over that. And so when I got back to New York, I jumped in and I found whatever jobs I could in New York City to learn how to do what they were doing on a much higher level. You know, and then because I had that sports background, I combined those two things and started getting jobs in sports. And so I'd travel all over the world. You know, I was doing Olympics and uh, and I've done Tour de France. I've done uh, World Cup soccer. Can't count how many Super Bowls, you know, and that's where the Emmys come from. Is uh, I've got uh, I think I just got just got another one for the Super Bowl. So I've got six Emmys now. It's been a great gig, really great gig. It, it pays well. It's kind of freelance. I'm kind of a mercenary. I don't have to work all the time. When I was when I was younger, before I had a family. I would just put a boatload of money away at some exotic place and just travel for two months wherever I was. It was really, really fun. And then when I got into um, into the documentaries with Slam Nation being the first, um, you know, I, I found that uh, that was a way to sustain the enterprise. So it's really difficult to make a living with documentaries. They're very speculative. I mean, some of my documentaries have made money, but um, a lot of them, they, they are very successful as far as like getting audience and getting exposure, but they don't necessarily make a lot of money. So to sustain that, I was uh, had a parallel career when the, with the sports editing. They were really good complementary fields. 
In Slam Nation, I did make an appearance and did one of the worst poems I've ever done, which was an improvisational poem about the hot dogs. Uh, so, come on, Navi, you apologize for that, but people love that poem. I know they, it made me it made me famous. That's my that's my only fame. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of people who are like, oh, you made me famous for that poem. Oh, dude, oh, why, why did you Jesus. do that? Yeah, what are you doing? Oh my the god, the bald guy. You know, he's, he's, he he hates that that fact that I made that his poem but you know that becomes a signature poem for people because it was in the slam nation you know? well you know we were all in a movie that captured a cultural moment that would never have been captured had you not shown up in portland yeah yeah well i was i was really happy to have had that opportunity and and uh, grateful that i got there before everybody else did you know? right. and uh it was a really rich experience not just from making that movie, but continuing in the community. So I had the rare privilege of being accepted in the community kind of as a poet. You know, I really appreciate that rare privilege. I stuck around for quite a while because I was milking it, man. I was the guy who made the movie. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> so did well. I was, I was famous, you know. I would, and the wonderful thing about that movement was it, it was a national movement. And so there were slams everywhere. So I could roll into any city, any town, and I could look up the local slam and I would be welcomed, vetted, and really appreciated. And I would have instant friends. And usually there were people I knew, people knew me. So it was a true national community that I could participate in all across the country. I remember one year I went on Gary Glazner's uh, tour, the bus, Busload of Poets tour, back and forth across the country on, on the, the slam tour bus. <laughs> and that was great. You know, that was really, that was, I had a lot of fun, like hanging out with the slam for, uh, for many years after slam nation came out. I was in New York at, on the last bit of that tour, the last night of the tour, when the bus rolled back into New York and there was a big party there. I was at that party. Mm -hmm. I yeah. re remember that, but you know, you have a lot of the footage you took in 1996 people haven't seen you're sitting on some serious material that's worthy of some kind of archiving i don't know mm -hmm. if you'll ever have the time to do it but somebody would really be able to do something with that we did a bit of that we put some of it up on youtube i'm not sure if we still have it up on on youtube i recently moved to vermont because of covid i, mean, I still work in manhattan still have an apartment there I mean, everything's remote now you know so it's all like kind of who where do you live anymore but i'm back and forth i recently bought a house we're still uh, renovating it but now i have a basement for the first time in my life so i took all the stuff i had in storage paying for it in jersey and moved it into this basement and i've got so much slam poetry stuff and i don't know what to do with it you know so i would love if if there's anybody out there who knows how to archive this stuff or like send it to a a museum or something i don't know i i don't want to toss it away at some point i can't hold on to it forever you know there's a lot of material but also the, the tape formats are becoming obsolete it's tricky to continue to maintain that kind of stuff our history kind of disappears with the technology so that's, that's just that's just something that's happening that's true and moving on from slam nation you also have other documentary films and i've 
been around a lot when you were making most of right. them. I well, was in in the soup a bit with you on that. Yeah, that's right. That's but right. So, so the, your your audience should know that Nave, Nave and I got to be good friends, and he would come to New York and just stay with me, you know, in my apartment. I mean, I was I was a bachelor at a two bedroom apartment, and I, that happened a lot. I mean, I had poets in in and out all the time. You know, Shane Koizan used to stay a lot, and uh, who I, they all stayed. Uh, so Nave was was always around. And uh, it was great to have him. I would just, he just, I think he'd just give you a key. You had a key for a while. He just, just showed up whenever he needs to. I was operating my production company out of the apartment, you know, cause New York rents are impossible. And uh, I was working on a shoestring. So I had three or four people in the second bedroom, which was, was the, the office and production company all the time. And um, so that was kind of what was going on. It was kind of like a, a documentary artist colony there <laughs> with, with poets on the periphery. But yeah, so the follow-up was called Power Trip, and that was about corruption, assassination, and street rioting over electricity in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. That one did very well. That, that uh, won a bunch of awards. We won the Berlin Film Festival, the forum section of the Berlin Film Festival, a bunch of other awards. We got an Independent Spirit nomination. Uh, that played all over the world. A lot of press for that. It had profound impact, not just on the on the country of Georgia, dealing with all their political corruption and the electricity problems and infrastructure problems they were having. The World Bank screened it. The U.S. State Department screened it. We won a, uh, an award from Transparency International because we were exposing a lot of the corruption that was happening there. So, you know, it was kind of really profound to have that kind of impact and, and being able to speak at those places. Influenced at the time and still does, energy sector of lots of different countries. The problems that were happening in Georgia with uh, corruption and stealing electricity and the American company coming in and trying to, to change the system and not being able to do so, that was happening in uh, other countries as well. People were using it as a, a learning tool to find out how to navigate these really difficult, overwhelming situations. When, when I first went in there, my access came from my friend Piers Lewis, who run a pilot project um, in a neighborhood in Georgia and successfully got people to pay for electricity. So that, that was the, the challenge and the, the dilemma, was they were coming out of the Soviet system where they never had to pay for electricity, and now they were being asked to pay. And they didn't get it, and they didn't want to, and they were stealing it instead. So there were illegal lines all over the place, and Piers was able to show that it could be successful. A huge $40 billion company, AES, you convinced them to, to buy the electric company in, in Georgia, and they thought, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna solve this problem here, then we're gonna take over the rest of the former Soviet space. And uh, they got their asses kicked by the Georgians, <laughs> by the corruption there, and by the population who didn't understand capitalism, didn't want to deal with that whole system. What was interesting, it was a real microcosm of that transition from communism to capitalism. And at first, I thought, no way I can tell this story. But Pierce convinced me to come in, and, and he kind of sucked me in slowly. I shot a little bit. It was kind of like Slam Nation. You know, I shot a little bit of Poets, shot a little more, and <laughs> tried to do a series, and now it's a movie. Same thing with Power Trip. Pierce just said, come back. I got something going on here. Come back. I, I kept flying back to Georgia, Tbilisi, Georgia. Eventually, just so many amazing things were happening there that that turned into a movie as well. That was a great ride. Well, I was there when you were editing the film, and I remember you heading off to Georgia. I didn't go with you, but you did take a few runs over to that 
former Soviet Republic. And that movie is full of talk about tension. I mean, the poets in Portland, we, we just like yelled at each other and had good time. These people, they were actually carrying guns and falling on power wires and all, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, it was it was intense. There were riots over electricity. So that, that was one of the, the lessons of, of the movie. Well, the, the interesting things you come to understand is how essential electricity is. And, and we take it for granted, but as soon as you don't have it is when you don't, when you stop taking for granted. So electricity was being rationed in Tbilisi. So every night you'd get like three hours and they, that would change and you'd lose it. You, you know, you get, make sure you're not in an elevator when it goes out, you know, that kind of thing. And you start uh, to understand the hardships that the population was facing. And it was, it was basically because of corruption. The power was being diverted to corporations and they were kind of stealing it. So there was a lot of things like that happening. That was the part that was great about Power Trip was we found the human interest in that, in, in all these kind of overwhelming macro issues. By identifying the human interest is how we made that movie accessible and made those themes come out in a way that people could understand and relate to. And then you moved from Tbilisi to space with the movie on your brother. It's interesting, Paul. I didn't expect to be following the films you've made in this interview because you and I just meander in our conversations and we've done it for years. I'm seeing some threads here in terms yeah, of really? what, uh, you, what threads? Well, you start out with the poetry, which is an on the ground artistic thing. And then you move from the poetry, which is by its nature, the slam is an artistic form of protest, an artistic form of of deep expression, sometimes angst, sometimes joy, saying, folks, look at this. Something is wrong here. Can we fix it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But please hear my cry. And then you move to Tbilisi, and you have the on-the-ground conflict that you get in a city that's torn apart by the contrast between the former Soviet Union and its collapse and the, the communist way of doing things and the capitalist way of doing things, which has as much tension as communism, except from a different point of view. And you have all these people crying out. And then you move from there to your movie Blast and your brother is looking up into space to see beyond the galaxies. And then you come back home to make a movie about your friend who is a rock and roll musician in New Jersey. And each one of those phases crying out of culture. It's all about rising up. Everything is rising up and the electricity is running through it. I've never thought of it like that until now. Well, it so, takes a poet to come up with that, Nava. Well, I, you know, I, I, no problem. I'll, 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 I won't send you a bill. Don't worry. What about Blast? Tell us about Blast. Your brother did a project that was really rather vast. My brother's a, a very prominent astrophysicist. These days, he's being funded by the Simons Foundation to build a $100 million telescope in Chile. So he is, sits on committees with NASA that figure out what NASA is going to do 10 years from now. He's a pretty high-powered uh, scientist, and he came to me one day and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to launch a revolutionary telescope on a NASA high-altitude balloon in Arctic Sweden. What do you say you come make a movie about that? <laughs> and I said, 
really? <laughs> okay. And like all my movies, I, 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 never, I don't believe it's going to be a movie at first, you know? So I said, hey, man, if you can get me a trip to Sweden, I'm there. <laughs> you, know, you pay for the trip. I'll bring my camera and I'll shoot it. I kind of knew what he did. But so he he's, he's builds these crazy telescopes. They're looking for submillimeter light, which is a light we can't see. And they're looking for dust clouds in the sky that form stars. So this was a kind of light that no one had ever looked at before. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope is looking at a very different kind of light. There was a, a satellite that was supposed to go up several years later, a billion-dollar satellite, and Mark wanted to scoop that satellite. He wanted to get there first and get this information before the satellite went up. $10 million telescope compared to a billion-dollar telescope, it's nothing. One they were going to send up for a billion dollars was a satellite. I went. I thought, okay, this is cool. I'll get it on tape. You know, we didn't know what it was going to be again. Give Mark the tapes and he can do what he wants with it. Again, the drama was incredible and the technology was incredible. This telescope is an amazing piece of equipment and it's hanging on a balloon that expands to the size of a football field at the top of the atmosphere. And they just let it float around the Arctic because that's the way the winds go. So basically the wind takes it from where you launched it and brings it pretty close back to where you started. They had such horrible problems launching the telescope because of weather, because of technical delays, NASA's involved and my brother's involved and they're clashing, you know, so you have the drama again. It was delayed for like three or four weeks, you know, and here we're in Arctic Sweden. I think I'm going to be there for a week and I'm there for a month. And I captured all of it and they launched it and something happened and it didn't work. So the mirror cracked. They didn't get the data they wanted. It was a big disaster. And I was like, all right, well, I guess we don't have a movie. And then Mark said, well, you know what? We're going to do it again, this time in Antarctica. We're going to go down south this time, all the way south. They have to go to the poles because that's where the winds go in a circle. And that's where they get the most light. The sun is up all the time, so they get the power to power the telescope, et cetera. So there's all sorts of reasons to do it either at the top of the earth or at the bottom of the earth. And so, again, I knew I had a movie like, OK, we're going to Antarctica. <laughs> so the problem is it's really hard to get to Antarctica. Don't just show up in Antarctica, especially if you're trying to get to McMurdo Station, the United States uh, base station there. I went through a big lot of hell to try to get down to Antarctica, but I finally did. We shot that movie. I actually got thrown off the ice, which is a common thing to happen. I got, I asked for an interview with the top guy and he didn't like the fact that I was the, the scientist brother. He thought I was there on a boondoggle and he threw me out. <laughs> My brother got really pissed. But by that time I had met everybody there. I had met all the cameramen there, just like Slam Nation. I found a bunch of cameramen down in Antarctica. I gave cameras to all the scientists. So I had like eight cameras covering this thing. They launched that balloon and that thing crashed too. I won't spoil the movie, but it was like drama, like you cannot believe, you know, was happening in this movie. And all of it was drama for me too. Because again, by this time, I've got the BBC funding me. I've got Sweden funding me because we shot in Sweden. I've got to deliver a movie, you know, now it's not just on my own. I've got money that I've spent on this thing and they want to broadcast it. And my dilemma is if thing fails, like if it really fails, do I have a movie? Does anyone want to watch a movie about a failed scientific experiment. It's a big drama for me as well, <laughs> whether or not this thing was going to work. I won't spoil the details, but apparently it did work because the movie was very successful as well. Played in Hot Docs and a bunch of other film festivals. We played all over the world on television, BBC in Japan, etc. The crowning achievement of that film, though, was because I did get thrown off the ice and I owed my brother and he was pissed at me because <laughs> I did screw up. You know, he said, lay low, don't 
don't sh- poke your head. We look too much alike. <laughs> Everyone's going to know you're my brother. <laughs> you know? I said, I got to make this movie work. So I did a theatrical release. Even by that time, it was really expensive and hard to do theatrical releases for documentaries. We got on Science Friday, which was really fun because I listened to that show. From Science Friday, everybody listens to that show, including Stephen Colbert. So Stephen Colbert heard us on Science Friday and called on my brother and said, I want you to be on my show. This is the Colbert Report when he was doing that. And so I got my brother on the Colbert Report. <laughs> and that was my claim to fame. <laughs> it's getting him and, and it made him famous. He's a legend in the astrophysics world because of the movie, because of the Colbert Report, and because he does incredible stuff. Being able to highlight it and feature it on a platform like the Colbert Show I, didn't hurt for sure. So that was a really fun experience. Finish out with front man. Yeah. Well, along the way, I did another one, which you, you don't know as well as freestyle. I wasn't the, um, the director on that, but I was producing editor. That was about um, rappers who can improvise their rhymes. So that was kind of a natural extension of Slam Nation as well. That was another movie I did a- along the way. And then, and then the front man, I was kind of wrapping up my independent career with the front man for about 10, 15 years, I had been running this operation out of my apartment. I had a producing partner, Claire Missinelli. We did a lot of work together and she was an amazing person, but she got breast cancer. After blast, she died. Around that time, I met Emily Robb, who became my wife. And we were getting serious around the time that uh, we lost Claire. You know, Emily was waking up at my place and there were five people in the other room, you know? It wasn't like I had a place to live. I was living in my office. And that became unsustainable. Claire gone. I wrapped up that situation. But I had this movie on the shelf. Claire and I, we'd started it. It was called The Front Man. It was about a friend of mine from New Jersey. I've known him since kindergarten. And he's one of those dynamic personalities that everyone knows, everyone went to high school with. He's like the the funniest, most... uh, energetic, most charismatic person you've ever met. You think like, oh, this guy, why is he not in the movies? Why is he not a star? How come nobody's discovered him? He's got that kind of guy. He's so talented. He's in a rock and roll band. He's got a beautiful voice, a great singer. Everybody knows that guy. So this was my guy. Jim Wood is his name. You know, my best friend since kindergarten. And I was like, all right, I'm going to see if he is that talented, if he is that funny. Does, is it just me? Just because I love him? I said to him, Early on, like in 2000, I'm just I'm just going to bring a camera every time we get together, and just we're just going to film. We don't I don't know where it's going to go. Again, it was it was just haphazard. It was like there wasn't going to be a movie. It was just fun, and we had a lot of fun. I would bring out the camera, and he would go into comedy routine. He was just like instant comedian. He would be able to do like routines off the top of his head, and it was it was really just fun, and we had a, a blast doing it. These things started happening in his life. He and his wife auditioned for a horror film, and they got in the film. We had this footage. He met his wife when he played at her first wedding in the, as, as the wedding band. And you can see her falling in love with the wedding singer, the, the wedding video. <laughs> we had these uh, amazing moments. And his wife winds up getting on the Howard Stern show <laughs> to announce her pregnancy. And, and one of the themes that we have is whether or not they're going to have a baby, he and his wife. I had these interesting gems that I needed to craft a story around to get these really fun, hilarious set pieces out and get this character across. That was probably my hardest editing challenge, a different kind of editing challenge in Slam Nation. So maybe not the hardest, it was, it was very, very tricky. There was no story. And I had to like completely manufacture a story out of that haphazard material. In some ways, that movie is very close to my heart because it's kind of 
personal. And I know what it took to fashion that into a story. And it turned into a comedy, a comedy documentary, which is very rare. And that's how I pitched it when it was finished. I would go out to all the people I knew, because by this time I was prominent in the documentary world, the film festival people and the promoters and stuff, the distributors. And I would say, look, this is a comedy. <laughs> and you're not going to find very many of these because most documentaries are really about difficult, horrible subjects, you know, and make us want to kill ourselves, guys. You know, let's be honest. You know, I, I had one audience member come up to me during Blast and he said, I came to, when we were playing at a film festival and he said, I came to see your movie because I just saw three wrist slitters in a row and I'm going to kill myself. And I want to see your movie because I know it's not going to be a wrist slitter. And that was the word he used, wrist slitter. Like you watch the movie and you want to kill yourself. These are about genocide and, and injustice and horrible things. And they're all trying to promote and raise awareness. And those are very important things. But I said to the programmers, look, the front man is a sorbet in between those two. A little bit of comedy in your documentary world. I was rejected left and right, man. They didn't want to touch that film. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I got a couple celebrities in it. I had Howard Stern, I had Elvis Costello and a few others, but um, I couldn't get the kind of traction on that film that I got with the other ones. It came out great. It's really funny. I mean, that's the great thing about playing these movies for an audience. You cannot fake the reaction. You know, you got 100 people in the theater. Sometimes with Slam Nation, I had 700 people in the theater. Power Trip, that movie played big theaters and some of these festivals. And, you know, when you get gasps, you can hear a pin drop. That reaction is undeniable. Know you've done something real. You can't fake it with an audience, you know. That's very true with comedy and laughter. And you cannot fake that. I, I was completely confident that this movie was funny because I play in front of 100 people and they'd be on the ground laughing. I felt confident to go to a programmers and say, this is a comedy. This is funny. People are laughing at the movie. They're not faking it. I couldn't get any traction at all. But, um, but I was kind of wrapping up at that point. By that time, you know, the office was shut. And the problem with the movies was they had become unsustainable. Everything was speculative up to that point. I was funding it myself through my, my day job, working sports, television. Blast was the first one that I got money up front. Like, okay, you're seasoned filmmaker now played your last film we like this idea here's some money go do it the problem with these independent kind of arty documentaries is you're kind of cobbling together the money you don't it's difficult unless you were getting hbo to pay for the whole thing to get the entire budget and so i would get part of the budget and have to continue and hope that you're going to make the rest on the back end but with blast i had all the money in place and then 2008, the recession hit. We had a sale to Arte, which is a big French-German station that everyone wants to sell to. They're, they're the biggest in Europe. And the series, the science series that it was supposed to go with got canceled, I was told, because of the recession, and they dropped our contract. And that was three weeks before our premiere at Hot Docs. I had to decide at that moment, I, I forget what the amount was, something around $50,000 fell out, fell out of our, our budget. And I had to decide at that moment, am I going to cancel my premiere or am I going to come up with the money myself? Because, you know, three weeks, I'm not going to get anybody else to come up with that. And I paid for it. I wasn't able to make it up on the back. And that's when I kind of got a little disillusioned. <laughs> like, all right. You know, I mean, it became 
unsustainable to do it the way I was doing it, you know, which is like complete independence on my own with solo artists with Claire, of course, and a bunch of people helping me basically having complete control. I think I had a conversation with you about that expense and you and I talked about, should I do it? Should I not? Should I do it? And we went back and forth. At least I have, that's my memory of it. And of course I told you, yeah, sure. No problem. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. So you you can blame me for that expense if you want to. That's not it, was, it was worth it. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, that was my thing. I was I was taking the risk as one of my subjects, a billionaire in Power Trip, the, the CEO of AES Tallahassee that bought the electricity company in Georgia said to me, I made him famous and he was really happy with me. We, I got to be friends with a billionaire. The CEO of Billionaire said to me, wow, Power Trip's doing so well. It's playing everywhere. You're getting interviewed by the New York Times. And like, wow, it's amazing. You must be like a lot of money. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm kind of breaking even. <laughs> and he said, he looked at me and said, Paul, well, if you have that kind of success and you're not making money, then you're in a bad business. I think it's changed now. I'm, I do work for hires now. I'm, I'm working on a documentary now for IMG, which is a big sports agency. And they have budgets and they have money. And I did one a, a few years ago. It was a great movie, Beautiful Lie. It's about a, a high-powered Silicon Valley CEO who goes um, through a, a gender transition. And we documented that transition. It's enlightened, but for that person, it was very difficult. But he or she paid for the documentary and hasn't released it. You know? so, so there's pitfalls with doing the work for hires, but you get paid. I think a lot of people who are doing the independent stuff eventually have to decide how they can sustain it and have to pursue ways that are economically sustainable. The other uh, dirty secret about a lot of filmmakers who are doing independent stuff, they have trust funds. They have uh, independent means of sustaining themselves. So they don't need to make money. So they can take that kind of risk. Well, it's been really good as we reach the top of, as we reach the top of our hour. I wish we had more time to just go on and on and on, as you and I have done over the years. But it's been really wonderful to hear you share your experiences as a documentary filmmaker and offer that to the people who are listening because so much of the stories one hears about the filmmaking business and the documentary business it's all rosy and i was there for much of what you did and i saw you throw yourself in i saw you throw yourself in physically emotionally financially and one of the things i've always admired about you is you have never stopped you continue on and on and on and you keep making stuff happen which is something that i think everybody can take a page from because that's what makes this stuff work it's not one flash in the pan but it's years and years of attention and and focus a bit of rigor and some talent determination and grit so congratulations on all of that and before we go, give us a brief thing about your Vermont life. COVID hit. I was working for CBS Sports and March Madness got canceled. And I said to my wife, who grew up in Vermont, let's cut out of town for a little while. <laughs> we stayed with her dad and we've been here ever since, a year and a half later. We decided to put my daughter in school here. My work went remote. CBS went remote. So we had fantasized about maybe living in Vermont. Didn't think we could swing it because there's not the kind of work we needed here. But now there is because I can work for the broadcast center at CBS from here. So 
we bought a house and we're fixing it up. It's, it's kind of a revelation, frankly. I, I lived in Manhattan for over 30 years, right? And I never thought I would leave. I have the zeal of the newly converted. I think I'm into it even more than my wife, who kind of misses Manhattan, even though she grew up in Vermont. <laughs> we're way into this experience. It's a big change and a big adventure. So we're enjoying that. Well, I spent a lot of time in Manhattan at your place, and I haven't been to Vermont yet. I'm looking forward to landing in Vermont and checking out your new house. While you're busy with the house, and before we say goodbye, would you mind telling folks how they can get in touch with you? I have two websites that people can look at. One is uh, devlinpix.com, D-E-V-L-I-N-P-I-X.com. You can get all my movies there. My editing work, devlinedit.com, D-E-V-L-I-N-E-D-I-T.com, professional editing and sports editing, that material's there. So that's, that's probably the best way to get in touch. Well, Paul Devlin, thank you so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. It's always fantastic to connect with you, brother. You too, now, man. Great to hear from you. You're, you're making it happen, too. I'm so happy you're doing the show. So there you go, my friends. Our conversation with Paul Devlin, sports editor, documentary filmmaker, global traveler, and man who now lives in Vermont. With his wife, poet Emily Robb, and their delightful daughter named Wren. I haven't had a chance to get up to Vermont to see Paul, Emily, and Wren since they moved to Vermont. I'm hoping at some point I'll be able to make my way up there and have more conversations around the country table rather than around the city table. And I hope you enjoyed listening to Paul's commentary about documentary filmmaking as much as I enjoyed listening to it. Those are the kind of conversations one can have around the table, city or country. And I hope you have people in your life who have stories to tell like Paul has stories to tell. We all tell our stories in different ways. That said, most of us have had the opportunity to sit around the table and just talk to friends. And to me, that's one of the most potent, meaningful ways of telling a story. So there's no great training involved in that. We, we do it all the time. And there's something delightful about it. And regardless of whether you're telling your story around a table or whatever mode you choose to tell it, like documentary of filmmaking, as Paul does, your story continues on and on and on throughout your entire life. And what we really do when we sit around the table or write a poem or tell our stories in whatever ways we choose to tell them, we're just taking snippets from this ongoing narrative that exists around us. And whatever we tell, it's just a tiny snapshot, if you will, of what's going on in the world, a constant upheaval, a constant movement, a constant creation of billions and billions of narratives. Come to think of it, trillions and trillions of narratives, actually. So pulling back from the trillions of narratives to a single narrative, I'm reporting to you that I'm sitting on a porch in Asheville, North Carolina, recording this show you're listening to now. For the past year and a half, I've been recording this show in Taos, New Mexico. So this is my first time out of the Southwest in that year and a half. You might be wondering what relevance does my location on a porch in Asheville have to do with Paul Devlin's filmmaking? Well, you remember Slam Nation, the movie that Paul talked about in the very beginning of the interview? Well, Slam Nation has something to do with my location here on the back porch in Asheville. And the reason why I say that is because I drove 
a couple of days ago from Taos all the way to Asheville so I could host the Leaf Poetry Slam Championships live for the first time in a couple of years. COVID-19 closed the Leaf Festival down, closed the slam down, closed most of the slams down across the country. So now things are loosening back up a bit. So I am happy to tell you I've come from Taos to Asheville to host this Poetry Slam, which will happen in a couple of days on a Saturday night. 6.30 to 11. We set up at 6.30. We start the show actually at 8. And it goes until 11. Now we're doing the old school slam approach. No different than what we were doing when Paul Devlin came to Portland and filmed Slam Nation in 1996. Some things never change. Actually, that's not true. Everything changes all the time. And yet, being on the slam stage at Leaf seems very similar to being on those slam stages all the years, going back to 1996, and even further back for me to 1991 and 92 at the Green Door in Asheville, North Carolina. So Asheville has always played a big part in my relationship with the spoken word movement and the poetry slam, so I have a lot to be thankful for in that respect. So this trip started a couple of days ago, five o'clock Monday morning. I hopped out of bed and put my gear in the car and headed out of Taos down to Santa Fe on my way south to Klein's Corner to hit I-40 and then turn left and stay on I-40 all the way to Asheville. I pulled out at 5 a.m. Mountain Time, which was 7 a.m. Eastern Time. When you drive east, you have to adjust your clock to the arrival time rather than staying on the departure time because you lose two hours in terms of the arc of the day. My plan was to drive a little bit one day, stop, stay in a hotel, and pick up the next day, drive a little more, and then arrive in Asheville three days later. It's 1,575 miles from Taos to downtown Asheville. I've done that trip many, many, many times, so I, I know the rhythm of the road, and I always intend to take it easy. I always intend to drive six or seven hundred miles, split it up, take breaks, look at the scenery, and continue on the next day. But you know what? I never do that. I never ever have done what I plan to do, which of course is what happens in life anyway. We never really do the plans that we make. They always seem to get revised. So when I left on Monday at 5 o'clock, I thought I was going to drive till around 5 or 6, stop, get my room, take a break, and pick it up the next day. Well, as you might guess, that's not what happened. 5 o'clock rolled around, and I was somewhere east of Oklahoma City on I-40, going along really rather well. I have brand new tires on my car, so I had no worries around durability and flat tires and all of that stuff. So there I was, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Central Time, Oklahoma City, or just, just east of Oklahoma City, and I thought, well, why not go on for a little more? So I did. I kept on driving and driving, and the sun went down. 
the dark came and somehow, I don't know why, but semi-trucks seemed to appear in the night, maybe phantom trucks, more of them. Why do the trucks come at night? Maybe they're not phantom trucks. Maybe they've been there all along and the lights exacerbate their existence. I don't know, but it seemed like when the sun went down east of Oklahoma City, like some country song, there were just trucks everywhere. Now the advantage to having trucks on the open road, on that interstate, the advantage is marker, marker advantage. And what I mean by that, these drivers have more seasoning on the road than all the car drivers that you can pick. So they know what they're doing. So when you're on the road with trucks, rather than being overwhelmed by the largesse of the truck, it's wise, or at least I've learned to do this, it's wise to watch how the trucks move and that will give you a sense of how you can fit into the rhythm of the road. So instead of being overwhelmed by all the trucks and the lights, I enjoy fitting in with the movement of the trucks because I know the truckers have a great experience navigating the byways of, of America. So it's a delight to be out there on the road with all these trucks. If you would like to hear some great trucker songs, Google Long Haul Paul and you will have a whole bunch of YouTube videos of this fantastic folk singer fellow who's also a seasoned truck driver. He records a lot of his music and his podcast in the back of his truck. Long Haul Paul, if you'd like to get the feel for the truck driving life. I am no truck driver. I have a Toyota Corolla, so when I'm driving down I-40, I'm doing it in a tiny little car that probably is the most boring car ever made in terms of style and zippiness, and yet it's a workable proposition, and since I don't travel all that much anymore, I chose a Toyota Corolla as the way to get me from point A to point B. Just so happens point A and point B, Taos to Asheville, was a little bit of a longer drive than I usually make, which is from my little apartment in Taos down to the grocery store and back. That said, thank you truckers for giving me the lights to move the way I needed to move down I-40. I drove a thousand miles on Monday. I know that sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but if you think of it mathematically, 80 miles an hour continuously for four hours will get you fairly far down the road and the interstate between Taos or Santa Fe or Klein's Corner where you hit I-40 and, and, and through Oklahoma, it's all 75 miles an hour. So going 80 miles an hour on brand new tires is only five miles over. And the cops don't bother you with a five mile over the limit speed going down the road. So I drove a thousand miles and then I decided to camp out. Well, it really wasn't a camp out. I pulled into the Walmart parking lot threw my seat back, covered myself over with a nice little blanket and pulled some veil over my eyes to keep the light out, put a pillow behind my head and fell asleep for six or seven hours. It was a great sleep. I loved it. I know sleeping in the Walmart parking lot is a bit much for some folks. For me, I think it's okay. We're well guarded. Walmart parking lot has security. They have cameras. So if a pernicious influence 
approaches the Walmart parking lot, they only come to the border because the pernicious influence realizes cameras are afoot. And indeed, so are they. So I slept really well in the Walmart parking lot, which was, was rather nice, I have to say. And then the next day, which was Tuesday, I rolled into Asheville about 3.30 in the afternoon after 575 miles of continuous movement east, came into the Smoky Mountains, wound through the interstate into the place where I was born, the Appalachian Mountains. Beautiful. Fall is here. It's warm. I'm sitting on the back porch. Happy to be here to host the Poetry Slam, which is coming up on Saturday night. We have 12 wonderful poets who will show up, and we'll all hold forth in front of a socially distanced audience. We'll have our masks on, except when we're performing. So COVID-19 is still here, and we're all trying to navigate that, like I navigated the interstate to get me to this spot where I am right now, talking to you and finishing up this show. So I really do appreciate you listening, and thank you for paying attention to what Paul Devlin does. He's a dear friend, and I'm glad he's, he's with us and still doing his work. I hope you're doing your work, too, wherever you are, telling your stories, writing it down, or just talking to a friend and smiling. So again, thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville, North Carolina, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for the theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song, my friend. WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. If you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. And if you would like to join me any Saturday for our Imaginative Storm Writer Gathering, I would love to have you consider it imaginativestorm.com we write for an hour and if you're a writer and you'd like to to be part of that hey it'd be nice to meet you on a zoom call imaginativestorm.com for all the information and finally thanks ever so much for tuning in to twice five miles radio i really do appreciate it and i hope you tune in again next time and until then i'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line